on Power Talk AM 1460 and FM 101.1. Streaming worldwide on iHeartRadio. Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show. You are listening to The Jam Price Show, and today I have two award-winning guests on my show, award-winning director Anthony Vonke and award-winning writer-producer Richard Kerbage. And we're going to be talking about their brand-new HBO documentary, Unmasking Jihadi John. Welcome to the show, Anthony and Richard. Thank you for having us. For having us. It's great to have you here. Okay, I have lots of questions. I'm going to start with Richard, since you wrote this. Richard, what, uh, I mean, obviously this is a, a, a very pertinent um, story for today and is in something that we all need to know more about, but what inspired you to decide to make this documentary and write it? Yeah, so I, I want to do a story about the sort of the formation and collapse of ISIS. Obviously, ISIS was dominating the headlines back in 2014 when they declared their so-called caliphate, their Islamic State. And so from that moment, there was a lot of interest in uh, among journalists in, in sort of interrogating their backstory, but also looking at how they're driving their recruitment campaign. And so over the ensuing months in 2014, it became quite clear that they operated and functioned a lot differently than uh, other terrorist organizations, although there are ideology was similar to other terrorist organizations, including, say, Al-Qaeda. Their recruitment campaigns were different. But then they had this enormous spike in recruitment when the Jim Foley, the assassination, the, the uh, execution of Jim Foley uh, was broadcast to the world. And what was uh, what was so savage about that video and what was, was so brutal uh, was that it was an attack that was being carried out by a Western terrorist, namely someone with a British accent who was uh, donning a mask. And, and I think for ISIS, at least, that sort of became a successful experiment for them because as a result of all the news that generated around the world, they were able to sort of replicate that. And so that sort of continues to expand their recruitment campaign. And so uh, around that time, I started thinking, well, I want to do a story that kind of captures uh, the overall sort of state, overall state of ISIS. And Jihadi John embodied so much of what that terrorist organization represented. I mean, his evil is barbaric, is disgusting. And so he was sort of a good way in to telling the wider story about the formation collapse of ISIS, the threat of the ideology which has outlived ISIS and will continue to outlive ISIS. And the um, recruitment drive that they ran and the way that they kind of weaponized social media by uh, using it to recruit and using it to uh, broadcast their messages. It was, it was very effective the way that they did it, but, um, you know, it, 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 for, for people who may not know who Jihadi John was, and um, Anthony, can you just enlighten the listeners a little bit in case for some reason they've forgotten who Jihadi John was? Mm-hmm. Well, Jihadi John was a, a young boy born into uh, a family in Kuwait, and they were part of a tribe called the Badoon tribe that were uh, actually uh, victimized and ostracized, and in the end, they, they decided to leave Kuwait, come to England. Uh, so he came to England when he was about six years old, and he they moved to northwest London, um, around the Maider Vale area, which is actually a, a very affluent, wealthy area of West London. Um, and he then started attending normal schools, was at primary school, which is, you know, junior school, and then went to a very prestigious academy called uh, Quinton Kinningston. And there, um, you know, this is where we actually get footage of him uh, in the film, which is something that's really, really quite extraordinary. Yes. That, um, 
and, and, and complete kind of uh, chance that there just happened to be a documentary crew at that time that were making a documentary about the school and there is rushes which are the actual footage that you shoot of Emwazi in the playground and he's with friends he's you know he's laughing about he's kind of in the playground and he's on the computer and at various times he's kind of covering his mouth and we later on explore is that it's part of something that was a symptom that kind of made people bully him and made him very self-conscious but um, in the end without giving too much wear in the film it, it kind of it, it partially led to his to his downfall in the sense because he had bad teeth and then he was in Kuwait and decided to come back to England for dentistry work but he in Wazi then became radicalized as a young man and he got involved with some young uh, want-to-be jihadis who wanted to make their way over to Somalia and but then that's where he suddenly became on the, the radar of of, uh, of the intelligence services and they then kind of realised that this they wanted to try to kind of monitor this man and realised that he had ambition to go and fight the holy jihad um, and then slowly but surely he would basically try as hard as he could to to, to travel out to uh, one of these theatres and the um, counter-terrorist units were trying to sort of thwart his travel as much as possible and eventually he made his way to Syria and eventually he, he uh, joined ISIS and then, obviously, he, he came into the world uh, world view when he kind of uh, he made those Meshes to America films, where he's beheading James Foley and, and other hostages. So it's really it, it is a this is what's relatively remarkable about this. That this is a young boy who had a quite conservative ideals and a, a relatively religious family background, and from a very very steep steep trajectory, he he turned from a conservative young lad to this, this extreme terrorist and global jihadist and uh, over a very short period of time and was one of many uh, but, but did this at the time it just so happened that he didn't he became so notorious because of these videos it, it's you know obviously it horrified the world when we saw those videos uh, but I I was curious I mean you did answer the question I have how you got the early footage of him in school I mean that just I was amazed I so there was a documentary uh, team uh, already there filming the school for what reason why were they there anthony they were they were making a, a just a, it was about the head teacher and it was about school and just it was about how an academy a school had become this young academy and it was just a kind of fly on the wall documentary uh, observing a year in the life of this school and uh, i remember i remember seeing scenes of this of this documentary used in, in news outlets around Europe. I, I, I never remember seeing it in America. And so obviously then we, we kind of, we understood that it existed and we contacted the, the the filmmaker and, you know, negotiated with them and then managed to get hold of that material. And and it is quite incredible. It's quite incredible that this exists and you see him at a young age. And obviously then we have the teachers who, who talk about him and describe what he was like as a young man. It is quite incredible, truly quite incredible. Richard, how difficult was it for you? Because there are many people who are in this documentary. It is a really eye-opening documentary that I highly recommend to everyone on HBO, but we'll talk more about that as we go forward here. Uh, to get... Um, you know, General Petraeus to talk and uh, Jesse Morton and, and Diane Foley, who is the mother of James Foley. I mean, there's a whole list of people and we'll talk a little bit about each one of them. And because you could see the pain 
the pain that was there for all of them for you know each well not for Petraeus obviously but certainly um, the others you know the, the Diane Foley and Bethany Haynes and and uh, Nicholas Hennen and yeah. Federica Mata how how hard was it to get them and how hard how difficult was it for them to speak about their experience over there. Yeah, well, I, I think I'll split that question into two parts because you've got sort of the families and the hostages, and then you've got the contributors who are part of the operation to track down, uh, locate, and subsequently kill Mwazi. So on the uh, on the latter, the people who were part of the operation, uh, I I had a sense of what was uh, what the operation kind of looked like because I'd uh, done numerous stories uh, through my reporting on counterterrorism and intelligence, the Sunday Times newspaper in London. And I started connecting with some of the people who were part of the operation. So I got, I had a sense of what the military and intelligence operation was, but it was about being able to draw it out from the right contributors who both had uh, an original insight into it, but who were also authentic and credible and also honest. And I think that's one of the key bits that I want to sort of raise here because I think all of the contributors were quite honest about some of the missteps that were taken and they were quite self-reflective in a quite a refreshing way that you don't usually get with former officials or current officials because quite often uh, you find people sort of talking about operations as if it was just a win and that's the end of it. But in, in their case, they really were uh, quite self-critical uh, about some parts of the operation and particularly about how uh, Jihadi John went on to become a terrorist. Uh, from the family's perspective and from the uh, hostage's perspective, yeah, they certainly were, you were right, they certainly were the, the emotional heart of the film because they, yeah, they represented the greatest things within each of us. So, for instance, Diane Foley in particular, uh, she's so she, she was so incredible and so moving because of her resilience. But also, she bears no grudge. You know, what, what's fascinating about her is that she wants to go out there and continue carrying on her son's legacy and doing good in the world, yes. as opposed to just reflecting on all the bad things that were done. And in that same sort of strand, you had these former, the former hostages who were contributed to the film. They too were out there, like her son, doing good things in this world. In one case, one of them was an aid worker trying to help destabilized and dislocated Syrians uh, who were staying in refugee camps. And another case with Nicholas Hennon, he was out there actually to report on what was happening on the ground. So they were out there for very good reason, uh, reasons. And I think a lot of people who did go out to Syria went out there for good reasons as well. And versus the you know terrorists who went out. So in terms of getting them on board, I think everyone who came on board had some some something to do with the story, you know, the whether it was the hostages or the families or the intelligence operatives, they weren't just there as commentators. They weren't just talking heads. They were actually they were invested in the story. It was part of, you know, what happened to them as well. And I think that's why they were so honest, so compelling. So trying to get them on board again, it was you know, throughout time, you know, after several conversations, they could see what the direction of the film was going to be and and what we were trying to say uh, by making this film. And so they agreed to come on board. Well, yeah, I think that's a blessing that they all agreed to come on board for sure. Anthony, um, did you try to get Mohammed 
Mwazi's family on camera to have them talk about their son? Um, we did, uh, and I know that Richard had tried to approach them uh, years earlier. Uh, uh, the family have gone underground, and um, it, it's, it's, we did try various avenues, but it, in the end it wasn't possible. And, you know, they are, they are now in hiding or they've changed their identities, and so um, it's, it's very difficult to sort of track where they are. And, and in some ways, it's, you know, they are, they're not responsible for him in a sense of what his actions and what happened to him and I think it's one of these you, you have to make these judgment calls about how far do you try to push for something like this and um, uh, and realise what those consequences would be for them um, And but also at the same time I think that we you know we knew that they, we would have a lot of characters to be able to tell this story in, in different ways and so yeah you, you do start off wanting to try to kind of approach these people but it's you know it was it's it's part of it was part of a process of many tricky ethical uh, discussions and conversations and decisions that you, we were making on a daily basis uh, whilst doing this film because uh, it is such a, a sensitive area and we were sort of very mindful about what voices we were we were going to use to help tell the story so um, yeah it was a consideration but it, it, in the end it never happened and probably would have changed the tone of the film a little bit too if, if they were on the film but it would have been interesting to hear their perspective if you're just tuning in I am talking today with award-winning director Anthony Vanke and award-winning writer and producer Richard Kerbage, and we're talking about the, their new HBO documentary, Unmasking Jihadi John. Um, in this, you've, you've talked with Jesse Morton, who was convicted a, a convicted Al-Qaeda recruiter. Tell me a little bit about him and his story, because I was not aware of him until I saw this documentary. Uh, Richard, can you answer a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, so, Je- so Jesse Morton sort of comes from, uh, sort of, you know, self self declared criminal background. He was uh, kind of uh, running drugs at a young age, and then ultimately he was convicted, and then he converted to Islam, and then he went on to become an Al Qaeda recruiter, and, and so, which is quite an unusual journey, uh, and what was fascinating about his journey is how able he was in his recruitment drives. He's incredibly eloquent and very bright, and he was able to sort of weaponize information and also weaponize the sort of his interpretation of the religion. And he was, and he became quite a successful recruiter, particularly because he was able to kind of push the message out with the right tone and without uh, and without sort of attracting uh, the authorities' attention. So although the authorities sort of had him under surveillance, they knew that he was out there, he just knew how far he could push each message. But ultimately, he pushed it a little bit too far when uh, him and his, um, uh, a member of his organization, I think it was called Revolution Muslim, uh, issued a death threat against the makers of South Park and subsequently... Uh, he uh, he went on the run. Then the FBI tracked him down. He was convicted uh, for, um, uh, for for his views and for his recruitment. And uh, so he's he's quite a fascinating 
he gives it quite a fascinating take on recruitment because he understands it. He understands the process of radicalizing people. And as he sort of points out in the film, he says it's not, it, it, it is a process that takes place over time. So initially you sort of recruit people on and you reinforce everything that's, uh, you know, great in their life. And you give them a sense of sort of kinship and friendship and you draw them in and eventually you start sort of pushing them towards the, um, sort of towards violence. And, and you know, that, so what was fascinating, sort of getting a state, an understanding of ISIS through someone who's been there before, mm-hmm. through someone who understands the religion and who understands the weaponization of uh, the extremist elements of that religion. Do you, do you think he had any regrets after this? And, and is he still in prison or is he out? I mean, he didn't look like he was in prison in the film, but I was no, just curious. He, he's out of prison and uh, totally he has a great deal of regrets. In fact, that's why he's now working in countering extremism. He's gone completely to the other side now, having initially been part of the problem. He now knows how to sort of approach the problem from the other side to try to sort of uh, discredit some of the arguments that have been made by other recruiters who followed in his wake. But he obviously realizes how much damage he caused, particularly in the U.S., because he was one of the most prolific recruiters and one of the most loud, the loudest voices. And he was seen as a really authentic figure within the extremist circles. It's fascinating. I mean, Anthony, you know, how could somebody like that? I mean, again, there, you know, he goes one direction. I mean, again, it's just a very strange journey to be on, as you, as you said, Richard. Uh, and then now that he was convicted and then go the other direction, how can we really trust that <laughs> him at this stage, uh, to do what he says he's going to do? That's to Anthony. Um. It's difficult to tell, uh, but I, I, I think so. I think that these are very smart guys, uh, uh, well, Jesse in particular, um, and I it, I don't know. We we had an interview with him. I know that Richard had various conversations with him. I think that they get to a point where they realize the error of their ways, and I think that type of, uh, and they've managed to contextualize their life, and I think they've, they've seen... Um, I think probably through their ability, their own ability to manipulate others um, and to be clever enough to, to be able to do that, that they have got then that insight and that introspection uh, to to make those decisions and, and think to themselves, yeah, actually, no, what I did was fundamentally wrong. Um, plus, you know, incarceration and, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and the things that go with that. So, you know, I do definitely get, I got the impression that he wanted to to change. And, and he is. I mean, he is part of a de-radicalization program. He's in different sorts of outreach. Um, and you do get a sense that he he's got serious convictions about all of these things. And, you know, you, you, you have to think that there are, and there are other characters in our film who did go out for and fight holy wars, um, some in Afghanistan and some other places, who have gone through that process and, and have realized the kind of the error of their ways and, and how they somehow were manipulated or taken in or, or would propagate this kind of perceived grievance. Um, and, and which would then lead to this kind of extremism. And, and, and as Richard says, you know, they are the kind of, in, in a sense, the experts of this because they have been inside it. They have uh, done it to people as, and it has been done to them. So I, I, 
I would. I, I'm an optimist in life, but I'm optimistic when I meet people, and I meet lots of people when you make film. And I was definitely under the impression that he had. He is. He's taking a different path, and uh, let's just say it's a more righteous path. Well, that's good to hear. It really is good to hear that there's some redemption in some of this. When you were um, putting together this documentary uh, initially, and I'll direct this to uh, Richard, um, was it always going to be produced by HBO, or did you just go ahead and start um, creating this documentary and then sell it to HBO? Yes, there were several several steps in the process. So initially, I did my own development on my own films and then I um, approached Channel 4 actually in the UK who gave who provided some funding and then HBO came on board uh, sort of a, a little bit further down track and uh, you know they, they played an enormous role in helping shape the film and the, the vision and you know elevate uh, some of our thinking on it and that's a great thing about collaborating with people who are you know experts in their field particularly someone like Anthony Wonky who's been doing this I mean this is kind of his 40th film I think so for me at least as someone who's this is you know my third film you know he kind of he really elevated my own thinking and my own sort of understanding of filmmaking but uh, but also kind of you know he, he helped me see the film beyond just the you know, initial story of the hunt that she had joined it became much bigger and better uh, as a result of working with I, I think it's it's interesting that whether or not you know when you make films like this you have subject matters like this that, that as, a, as filmmakers you go out and you, you know you have your meetings and you go and pitch to various people but ultimately they find you somehow or that they and, and it becomes a natural fit and I, I've done stuff with HBO before um, and I thought and I remember saying to Richard we, you know we should really really go for these guys because they're great and they I think they have got the best reputation for this type of documentary as, as well as the news and current affairs department at Channel 4 and they've you know done consistently over the years lots of these uh, very heavy hitting difficult uh, investigations and, and around sensitive areas, especially around uh, Syria and, um, and and Iraq. So it was, you know, they're a, they're a very good fit, and they're a, you know, um, they've they've just got such a good track record, and, and they were very good. They just let us got on with it, and um, they've been very supportive. Well, they are the best. HBO for documentaries. Um, reputation is absolutely the best in, in the industry. So you really uh, definitely teamed up with the right partner on this for sure. Um, this will premiere on July 31st on HBO. And I highly recommend that everyone seek this out because it's just it's a fascinating study about how someone who is nondescript, actually, and can go from from a zero to 180 and become this uh, international uh, diabolical terrorist. Um, and it's just fascinating. I think it really captured uh, all of our attention uh, for sure when we saw what they were doing. So thank you both for take, you know, for putting this movie together because I think it's very significant and very, very important. So I highly recommend everybody uh, look for it on July 31st on HBO. And thank both of you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. You have been listening to The Jam Price Show all about movies, and my guests today have been award-winning director Anthony Vonke and award-winning producer and writer Richard Kerbage, and we're talking about Unmasking Jihadi John, which will be on HBO on July 31st. If you would like to listen to past shows that you may have missed, you can go to thejampriceshow.com, and uh, also you can go to iHeart's podcast channel. And to find out what's coming up on The Jam Price Show, check out The Jam Price Show on Facebook and like it while you're there. Thank you. On Power Talk AM 1460 and FM 101.1, streaming worldwide on iHeartRadio, Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show. The Ozio Theater in downtown Monterey is now open every day, showing independent and foreign films. The Ozio Theater has new concession offerings, including beer, wine, hard cider, and their homemade lush slush. You can now schedule private event screenings for community charity events, birthdays, anniversaries, or just a fun gathering of friends. For more information, visit the Ozio Theater online at oziotheater.com.